a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of November 6th, 2023. And we're in the diamonds portion portion <laughs> we're in the diamonds portion of the wild card quadrilateral mm-hmm. is quadrilateral the wesleyan quadrilateral is a theological term that popped to mind as i was thinking about this so I mean, it's, a, it's a four-sided shape yes i knew that I somewhere it, in my I brain counts. i think it counts yeah so we've got some games to talk about, but before we talk about the games, let's talk about us. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing fine. It is disturbing how rapidly approaching the holidays are at this point. I don't um, want to talk about that. Okay, then I won't. Uh, <laughs> no, other t- than t- that, t- t- yeah. Did any any <laughs> exciting holiday plans on the horizon? I mean, we got family. We got we're we're figuring mm-hmm. out our our home has over over the course of the last few years sort of become the place where thanksgiving and christmas happen um, Mm -hmm. partially because we we had the small kids whereas everyone else in the family had either older kids or no kids or or like grandparents or whatever so it's easier for them to come to us than us to like pack stuff up and go to them yeah that makes Um, sense and so at this point, like we can travel pretty easily. The kids are older enough, but we also have a, a decent space for it. So probably we're going to be hosting those things. We just have to figure out who everyone is that we're inviting over. Not that we want to exclude people, but we're also like, we do only have a certain amount of room. And at a certain point, you know, like 25 people is too much for Thanksgiving. Yep. So, but other than that, we're like, things are going fine. How about you? I'm also good. And my house also is where people converge for Thanksgiving, more because we are geographically in the middle of the family spread than because of kid age stuff. Oh, also, we have guest bedrooms, unlike mm-hmm. unlike mm-hmm. the other folks who might be candidates for hosting. So yeah, I guess I have people arriving in how many weeks does november even have who knows mm. who knows next week people are arriving which will be it's great just about two weeks away yeah yeah <laughs> yeah uh we've got the north carolinians coming up uh the weekend before thanksgiving and staying for a whole week that'll be awesome i'm super excited about it um the other thing i'm super excited about that i was talking to you about kyle before we started recording is that my church is going to abolish two million dollars of medical debt so that's a really it's, exciting yeah. thing uh, that they're going to be doing. They had um, they had a bit of a financial windfall and wanted to use some of that money for something really meaningful to help some people. And there's an organization that can buy distressed medical debt for pennies on the dollar. And so instead of calls from collections agencies, all of a sudden people get a letter saying your debts have been forgiven courtesy of this church, which is such a cool it's such a cool thing so yeah uh i think maybe we can throw that organization into the into the show notes this week in case people want to look into that as well yeah yeah so that's that's been a really exciting 
development. It wasn't my idea. It was the idea of one of my lovely congregants who heard of this organization was like, I think that we should do this. And it's, it's just really exciting when people, you know, want to put their money where their mouth is and, you know, make the world a better place. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of bureaucratic nonsense in churches. And so, you know, it's nice when it's nice when also you're reminded like wow like these are really great people trying to you know trying to make the world um kinder so yeah so yeah that's that's my that's my exciting thing this week um, that's really awesome yeah so hey jeopardy was the other exciting thing this week um Indeed. yeah so let's let's talk about Monday, November 6th, it was semifinal game three of the Diamonds, and the contestants are Brian Adams, a retired public educator from Big Bear Lake, California, Jelana Cotter, a senior data analyst from Dade City, Florida, and Dave Pye, a field application scientist originally from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And the Jeopardy round categories are It's Gonna Blow, Call Out the Bob Squad, Message in a Battle, Haiku About the Poet, high-scoring Scrabble words, and Kiss My Grits, which was all about Southern food, most of which was not grits or even really corn-based. True. Yeah. Okay. When it, the, the $200 clue of Kiss My Grits, eaten for breakfast, or as a side dish, hominy grits are made from this. And I was like, they're made from hominy. Uh-huh. Which is why they're hominy grits. What do you mean? What is it made of? I apparently had either never learned or forgot that hominy is made from corn. Yes. I just, I don't know. I just, I was like, yeah, it's made of hominy. I learned something and that was nice. Mm-hmm. It's great to learn because knowledge nice. is power. It's really, really upsetting to me that there was a poet category and the clues were poems because you know my stance on poetry. <laughs> I do. You're against it. I am I am vehemently opposed <laughs> to poetry in all forms and all people who do it. Yep. No, it was it was fine. It was a little bit hard for me to access, but as I have stated n- many times, I am for whatever reason incapable of learning poetry. Yeah. I believe in you, Kyle. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> I obviously um, don't. Yeah, the contestants did okay with it. The only one they missed was the $600 level. American Guy, The Wreck of the Hesperus, That's All You Should Need. Jelana tried Who is Robert Frost, and that was not correct. It turned into a triple stumper. It's Longfellow. The Wreck of the Hesperus is not what I would go to for Longfellow, but okay. I, I feel like I would recognize a Longfellow title, and that mm-hmm. was not one of them. Yeah. Or at least, you know, I'd recognize some Longfellow titles. Yeah. And I think I think some of these haikus were were disorienting. The rest of them got correctly answered, but I felt like the contestants kept having like moments of like freezing and then eventually blurting out the correct answer. But it mm-hmm. felt like it felt like they were they were working for these. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought like I said, it was challenging for me to be able to access and it seemed to be a bit tough for them too. Yeah. It's Gonna Blow was all recordings of different instruments that then the yes. contestants had to name with with clues giving a little context. I thought the $200 level was maybe a little tricky for that level. We heard a recording and then this wind instrument evolved from the aura and then and the symphonium of the 1820s. And Jelana got it. It's the harmonica. I don't know. I guess like hearing a recording of the harmonica, like 
I don't immediately think harmonica. I also don't because it is it's played in kind of a character characteristic bluesy way. Then I can be like, oh yeah, that's a harmonica. But if it's just like some harmonica tones, there are a lot of reed instruments that have a similar timbre. And yeah. so I, I also was like, I'm not sure what that is. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the text of the clue, I think didn't hand it to you right. the same way that some of the other ones did. I thought the the $400 level in first position, this instrument slide is fully retracted in seventh position, fully extended. They didn't really even need to play anything. Right. I was thinking, you know, what is a wind, like an instrument you blow into with a, with slide, a slide, right? right. I guess that it could be easy. a slide whistle. <laughs> in I, like a, I don't, like, but, but I don't like think not, slide not, whistle not, technique goes that deep. Yeah. Like, obviously, that's a trombone. I didn't even really need to hear the sound you know mm-hmm. but yeah i didn't think the i didn't think the wording of the harmonica clue was that helpful in getting you to harmonica right uh, but jelana got there nevertheless yeah daily double number one is in message in a bottle it's the second pick in the round it's at the 800 dollars level uh dave finds it because he got the 600 dollars level uh for the first pick so he's at 600 the others are at zero uh he wagers a thousand gets the clue the english crushed the highland clans at culloden moor in 1746 message to this would-be king stop pretending and he is not able to get to the correct answer he draws blank uh it is bonnie prince charlie known as right. the pretender Mm-hmm. he must not be an outlander fan is that a big outlander thing yeah yeah there's a that is if i remember correctly it's been a while since i watched outlander but i think that particular battle and the and that that political context is, is part of part of the plot of Outlander. Gotcha. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Dave is at 5,600. Jelan is at 1,800. Brian's at 1,600. And the double Jeopardy categories are to the exoplanets at the ancient Roman Cineplex. It's fun. We got a Roman numeral category. It's fun. A la carte with L.A. in quotation marks. What a body. Popery. Just straight up. And odd four letter words. Hmm. Wonder what makes them odd. Just that we don't use them very much. Yeah, lesser used. I think yeah. nobody knew the the very first pick of the round was the sixteen hundred dollar level. There, this word from Heinlein's "Stranger in a Strange Land" means to communicate sympathetically. Nobody tried that. That is to grok. I, I did did not know that one either. Oh, you haven't heard that? Okay. Yeah, it's. I hear it used meaning you know like. Not just to intellectually understand, but to like, you know, sort of on a gut level to get okay. it. And I used, I introduced that term in a sermon at one point, And then like, you know, a very sweet, proper little old lady came up and was like, thank you so much for explaining that because I do the crossword every day. And <laughs> that word has come up a few times and I didn't really know what it meant. That's awesome. Yeah. Helping out with crosswords. That's what trivia people Mm -hmm. do. That's what we do. That's what we do around here. The $2,000 level of potpourri. It's the Hebrew name for the prayer shawl seen here. And I think they had a picture at the the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall of men praying with those prayer shawls on. A talit or talus, I think, is also correct. Um, Mm -hmm. In Yiddish, Yiddish or Ashkenazic Hebrew uh, talus. So maybe they wouldn't take talus with an for with just an S, hebrew uh if they since they specified hebrew but I, but i'm not sure similarly you'll hear 
Shabbat or Shabbos. Yeah, there's like a there's like a T S discrepancy. Uh, yeah, between that, the languages. Yeah, that you'll that you'll encounter with a with a number of different like Hebrew, Yiddish words. Hmm. At the ancient Roman Cineplex was fun. We had your favorite movie there at the two thousand dollar level. Two thousand seven, Gerard Butler and Lena Headey in blank blank. Yeah, you were supposed to supply the missing number from the film title in Roman numerals, which I lost track of a couple times. So I would have struggled here. Like there were just there was like remembering that extra step. Yeah. So CCC three hundred for three hundred. Yeah. Daily double number two is at the two thousand dollar level of to the exoplanets. It's pick number six, and Dave finds it. <laughs> He's at. 8,800 with Jelana at 1,800 and Brian at 400. He wagers 3,200 and he gets the clue. In 1995, astronomers confirmed the first exoplanet orbiting a sun-like star in this equine constellation. He can't come up with that. They're looking for Pegasus. Yeah. I struggled a little bit with that because I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is Pegasus, but also... I mean, I guess it counts as an equine, but it's not really a horse. Right. So I was like, is there... I was like, is there... Is there a horse constellation? Like, I know there's the horse yeah. nebula. Is there like a not... hunter riding a horse? Or right. yeah. yeah, I I was like unsure because of that particular Burning. term. Yeah, yeah, but but it is Pegasus. Yep. And daily double number three is in a la carte at the two thousand dollar level. Pick number ten. Jelana uncovers this one. She's at three thousand. Dave is at sixty eight hundred. Brian's at four hundred. Uh, and she wagers twenty nine hundred gets the clue it's the celebrated region in spain that's shown here and they showed it and she gets it correct with what is la mancha yeah there were windmills in the picture yes. which helps yeah, yeah of course mm -hmm. so at the end of the double jeopardy round jelana is in a slim lead with eleven thousand five hundred. dave is right behind her at eleven thousand two hundred, and brian is at 5200 the final jeopardy category is music and literature and the clue is John Steinbeck called this one of the great songs of the world and wanted the music and lyrics printed in one of his novels. Brian got so close, so close, so close. So he had close. what is the battle hymn of the Republic or, or Republic, depending <laughs> on how you decide. Depending on how that. old you are. <laughs> Yeah, so he he was missing the letter L from Republic, and they could not take it. He wagered everything, so he drops to zero. Dave didn't come up with anything. Uh, he wagered just 400. He was looking to stay above Brian if Brian went all in and got it right. He knew that Jelana would have to make a big wager to cover. So smart wagering, he drops mm -hmm. down to 10,800. But Jelana did get it right. The only one to get it right, what is the battle hymn of the Republic? You know, Brian, Brian almost got it, but yeah, yeah, maybe some consolation to Brian that, you know, Jelana, Jelana did knew it. So he wasn't one L away from the finals as it turned out. Right. And, and even Dave's wagering kept him above Brian would have been anyway. So like, right. Yes. He clearly knew it. He just mm -hmm. missed a letter. So that's like, everyone knows you knew it. So you yep. can have that, that consolation. And also it didn't affect the outcome of the game. Right. So yeah. Like, he would have ended up, uh, Yeah. Even in, if Jelana like missed it, yeah. he would have been in second place, maybe. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, second place. So that brings us to the finals of the wild card diamonds. So when we have Aaron Craig, Jelana Cotter, and Emily Sands, who we have already dealt with a number of times in this tournament. So mm -hmm. we're going to get right to the Jeopardy round when we have the contestants. Do you know the way to San Jose? Bands and other words. Critters. Death. 
taxes, and Latin phrases. We had two misses before we got a successful response on the $600 level of Do You Know the Way to San Jose? San Jose Sukkot's in Belize is the starting point for Shunatunich, famous for its ruins of this people. And the contestants, like me, cannot keep their early American, <laughs> Central Central and South American civilizations straight. Aaron tries, what are what is the Aztec people? Emily tries, who are the Olmec? And then Jelana finally gets it with the Mayans. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, mm, someday I'll get it. Yeah. But I'm uh, not alone. <laughs> Aztecs are farther north. Belize yes. is, you know, near the Yucatan, or on the Yucatan, basically. So mm-hmm. if it's Yucatan, it's going to be Maya. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Aztec are farther north, Mexico City, Olmecs, a little bit farther south in more of the Central America yep. region. But mm-hmm. obviously, like, you got to be able to remember it when it counts. Yes. Aside from, I, I realize this, aside from Impressionists, the only French painter I can name is Jacques-Louis David. And the $1,000 level of death was a final pose is depicted here. They showed it by this French painter. It's the death of Marat by mm-hmm. Jacques-Louis David. Yep. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, can I name other French artists? Oh, of course. Monet, Manet, Renoir, right? But I'm like, yeah. wait a minute. But those are all Impressionists. And outside of Impressionists, the only one I can think of is David. Yeah. It took me a while to get David's name solid in my head because it looks like David, which is such a, you know, mm-hmm. English name to me. Right. So to have this sort of iconic French painter have the last name David, David, took a little bit of learning for me to sort of be confident in that in that knowledge. Hmm. Daily Double number one is in that death category at the $800 level. It's pick number 10, and Emily finds it. She and Ken have a little joking around about how, you know, death is <laughs> death is being good to her. She wagers everything on death. She's at 1600 with Jelana at 3400 and Aaron at 800 So she makes it a true daily double. Uh, she'll move into second if she's correct. She gets the clue. The London space called This Green has a memorial to those such as Margaret Pohl who were beheaded there. And she looks like she is not confident about it. I took the same guess as her and tries. she tries Tower Green, and that is correct. She, ident- she figured out that it was the Tower of London. And, you know, my thought process also was like, well, it's, it's, that, it's, that, you know, it's that central space in the Tower of London, but I don't know if it has a particular name. I guess I would say Tower Green because I don't, you know, if it has a name, I don't know it. But it is, in fact, Tower Green. Mm-hmm. So she moves up, and at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jelana's in the lead with 7,600. Emily is trailing a little bit at 6,800, and Aaron is in a distant third with 1,600. And the double Jeopardy categories are Albert Camus, Deuteronomy, that's dude, like D U D E, like dude, where's my car? Mythological paintings, government and politics. You're getting very sleepy, and starts with dot, dot, dot. There's a, a Bluey episode during which Bluey starts calling everyone dude. <laughs> and so my kids latched onto that for That's a little fun. while. So everything was dude, dude. I vaguely remember that. Do you remember which episode it is? It's one where I, I, I don't remember exactly like the main thing, but like Bingo is sad and Bluey is trying to cheer her up. They're at the dinner table 
Yeah. I don't remember the main point, like the initial conflict, but. Mm hmm. Yeah. 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 I'm pretty sure I've seen that one at some point. My daughter has latched on to being unicorse. Like, <laughs> it's, it's rude when Bandit does it. It's rude when Unicorse does it, and it's rude when you do it. When you do it. You miss the point. <laughs> Quoting somebody else being rude does not give you a pass. No. <laughs> That's so hard to teach the kids. It's like, uh -huh, well, so-and-so uh -huh. did it. It's like, yeah, and then what happened? Right. <laughs> what did they learn from that? You're not reaching the end of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, $2,000 miss in mythological paintings. A painting by Agnolo Bronzino. Cosimo de' Medici is portrayed as this poet and lyre player. Uh, Chilana knew it, but didn't get there in time. Which is weird, because she said it after time, but Emily and Aaron did not try it. Didn't, Maybe didn't they, take the rebound, yeah. yeah Maybe they I don't thought she if, got it wrong? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, but it was Orpheus. Yeah. If you, lyre player in Greek mythology. Like, mm -hmm. if it's not Apollo, it's Orpheus. Yeah. And really, if it's not Orpheus, it's going to be Apollo. Probably the question is going to be Orpheus. Yeah. We'll we'll get to it, but Emily ran away with this game. It's the yeah. first day of a two-day total point affair. I sort of forgot as I was as I was watching this round that it was a that it was a two-day total point affair. Sometimes when somebody's starting to run away with the game and like it's it's becoming impossible or it has become it's become impossible for third place to get into contention mm. it, it made me wonder is there ever a time when it is advantageous for the third place player to stop ringing so that the second place player can try and catch up to, to force, force a wager to force yeah. a wager yeah i'd have to have i'd have to like math it out but i was wondering about that right cuz like cuz aaron was still ringing in and i was start i forgot it was a two day total point affair for a minute and i started to think like is it to his advantage to just stop you know yeah um, so that jelana can make emily have to bet yeah. yeah yeah so in a two day total point affair i think no right like you just want to mm -hmm. like even if somebody's running away with the game you just want to rack up as much cash as you can so that you know, hopefully the next day goes better and you have a decent amount to add to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I found I found myself wondering about that. If anybody wants to math it out for me, feel free. <laughs> yeah. I certainly won't. I like math, but I'm not I'm not sure I'll get to that one. <laughs> Daily double number two is in government and politics is at the two thousand dollar level. Pick number ten. Emily finds it. This is where she starts to really take off. She's at 12,000. Jelan is at 12,400. Aaron is at 2,800. She wagers 8,000, which is the right move, especially with two days to do as much as you can. Gets a clue. Randawa is the maiden name of this Republican, a former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And she gets it correct with who is Nikki Haley. Mm -hmm. And five clues later, pick number 15. Jelana finds daily double number three at the $2,000 level of Albert Camus. At this point, Emily is up at 21,200. Jelana's at 14,000, which is a solid score, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. not having found any daily doubles. And with half of the double Jeopardy round still to go, like that's a, that is, that is just, that's just her straight score. Aaron's at 4,000. Jelana wagers 9,000 to try to get above Emily. And she gets the clue, Camus' attack on Stalinism in 1951's L'Homme Revolt strained his relationship with this other existentialist. 
And Jelana can't come up with anything. They're looking for Jean-Paul Sartre here. Sartre. Um, and I feel like I saw her confidence get kind of shaken there. Yeah, there's a big hit to take. Yeah, yeah it is. And Jelana was, and she was the one who rang in on that very next clue with Orpheus that you mentioned. So I think, I think she was still like shaken from that daily double and trying to recover. She had, you know, she had it in her head. I often, something about like poet and lyre player makes me think, oh, not Apollo, the other one, you know, and have to reach for it. So yeah, but that's a, that was, so she follows her 9,000 up with another $2,000 loss. Yeah, she did manage to recover and start building again before we got to final Jeopardy though. Yep. So going into final, Emily's at 22,400, Jelana's at 11,000, and Aaron's at 7,200. World history is the category, and the clue is this African capital renamed an area Mexico Square in honor of Mexico's World War II era support of its sovereignty during Italian occupation. Guess what country? The mm-hmm, only country in mm-hmm, Africa, according mm-hmm. to Jeopardy. Aaron got it correct with what is Addis Ababa. And he wagered 2800 to get to around 10000 Jelana put, what is Ethiopia? Oh, no. Not the capital. I mean, she knew it, but just put the country instead of the capital. Wagered 8000 and drops to 3000 Like, oh, man. Mm-hmm. Disheartening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Emily got it correct with what is Addis Ababa. And a wagered 8000 to go up to 30400 Yeah. So she has a huge lead. Yes. Day two. Yes, indeed. So we're heading into day two. It's Wednesday, November 8th. Same contestants, and we just heard their subtotals. So let's go right to the Jeopardy round, where the categories are fan mail to historic figures, the A-team with A in quotation marks, I pitied to food on the old map, Metallica, and L blank O. Every correct response will start with L and end with O. The rare Jeopardy sports category where every clue was correctly responded to indeed a team yeah that i don't i haven't looked at statistics but i feel like that doesn't usually happen yeah there's usually a triple stumper somewhere in what and in any sports category i think right yeah Yeah. well i mean most categories don't yeah fair enough necessarily you know i think that's a pretty high percentage and a thousand dollar clue was the one that was particularly tricky sing a little song and tell us this nickname of montreal's canadian football league team um emily gets it correct uh, she pronounces it the Alouettes or Alouettes. Yeah. It's just Alouettes, but yeah, she gets it, gets it correct. That's a, that was a deeper one. The other ones I thought were like pretty easy. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got most of them and I am notoriously not good at sports. No, you're, you're fine. Uh, I'm improving. Yeah. That's all we can ask for. Yeah. We had two, sort of classical musically directed clues in the El Blanco category. The mm-hmm. 600 was the opposite of staccato. It's a direction to play music smoothly. John, I got it. That's legato. And then the 800, W.S. Gilbert wrote it for the Mikado, and Emily got that as libretto. Yeah, I guess words that end in O, you're likely to go Spanish or Italian-derived yeah, words, which you know points us toward musical terminology mm-hmm. yeah uh we touched on the 600 dollars level of on the old map in the quiz recently right Separate i was States just gonna say that. 1964 tanganyika and zanzibar combined to form this country and jelana got that that's tanzania i don't remember exactly what the quiz question was but I, we, uh, I remember we talked about that 
it was about where Freddie Mercury was from. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because he is from Zanzibar, mm-hmm. uh, which was a protectorate of the British Empire. Yeah. Sort of. Until Tanzania became Tanzania. Mm-hmm. I thought the $1,000 level of that was a little bit tricky. Since, the, since 1964, the former Northern Rhodesia has been this, now second from the end alphabetically. Mm-hmm. Because both Zambia and Zimbabwe are right there. Mm-hmm. And I believe both were part of Rhodesia. Um, so you have to kind of remember, which threw me off because I was like, is Zimbabwe last in the alphabet? Yeah. Or is there another Z? Oh, no. Right. I had the same thought process. And then I was like, I'm just going to say Zimbabwe. Right. But Aaron got it. It was Zambia. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in fan mail to historical figures. At the $800 level, pick number 16, Jelana uncovers it. She's at 3,200, Emily's at 3,600, and Aaron's at 4,600, and she bets it all. Which, two-day total point of affair with so much to gain, you have to. Yeah. It gets a clue. Will you sign my copy of the Doomsday Book? Doom Doomsday Book. You commissioned my king? It's a first edition from 1086. Mm-hmm. And she gets a correct with what is William the Conqueror. Yep. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Emily's at 6,200, Jelana's at 7,200, Aaron is at 4,800. And we have the double Jeopardy category, a C in anatomy with C in quotation marks. The movie with V in quotation marks. Encyclopedia Brown. Dear Abby, as in a place where Abbots live. At a loss for words and more than one meaning. Sorry, at a loss for worlds. Mm, right, yes. All of those have to do with sort of sci-fi or fantasy literature. Yep. And we just had a triple stumper about Heinlein and the word grok. And in At a Loss for Worlds, we have at the end of Arthur C. Clarke's childhood's end, this world is destroyed. Nobody tried that. It is the earth. Yeah. Heinlein and Clarke are both, you know, sort of major kind of historical sci-fi authors, prolific. Yeah. Big names in the, in the genre. Yes, the uh, that doesn't. Even if you know Clark and Heinlein, you might not necessarily know, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Grok or the, you know, the details of of Clark's works. I don't know if that's an especially well known one, or if you just had to sort of, you know, infer and work right. out the, yeah. We had a reversal, the $2,000 level of C in anatomy, which I thought was coming when I when I heard it. But the clue is, if your left brain hemisphere needs to CC your right, it's a good thing they're connected by this CC, and they showed a diagram and highlighted it. Aaron, guess what is the cerebral cortex that is on the outside of the brain, not the inside? Emily said, what is the corpus coloscum? I heard it mm-hmm. as a T. I heard she heard, like, colostum. But clearly there was an extra letter in there. They yeah. ruled her correct. But then before Final Jeopardy said, actually, it's Corpus Colossum, and you added some kind of letter in there, so they took it away. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in Dear Abby at the $1,200 level. It's pick number six, and Jelana finds this one. She's at 10800 Emily's at 9400 and Aaron is at 6800 and Emily has such a huge lead from the previous day. Jelana needs to go big. So she does. Mm-hmm. She goes with 10,000. She leaves herself just 800 buffer in case she misses. She gets the clue. St. Mary's Abbey in this city lent part of its name to a theater that W.B. Yeats co-founded. And she gets it correct. It is Dublin. Yeah. 
good guess for Yates. Mm-hmm. And P- Daily Devil number three is in At a Loss for Worlds, $1,600 level, pick number nine, so just a little bit later. And Aaron uh, gets this one. He's at 5600 Emily's at 9400 and Jelana is up at 20800 Uh He wagers everything. And gets a clue. It's the real name of the planet referred to in the title of a 1965 Frank Herbert novel. And I don't know if he's ever read the book or not, or seen the movies, but he he's guesses what is Dune, and that is the novel and kind of the colloquial name for the planet. But the real name of the planet is Arrakis. Yeah. This is, I mean... Dune is well known, but the real name of the fictional planet is a deep cut. And I also, the real name of the planet made me think that maybe this was some other Frank Herbert novel about mm. a non-fictional planet. You know, that maybe oh, Frank Herbert also had some other novel I didn't know about that was set on Mars or something. Yeah. yeah. So I think I, I would have taken that in the wrong direction, but also I don't think I would have remembered Arrakis, even if they'd said it's the real name of the planet from Dune. Mm-hmm. Or the formal name, maybe. Yeah. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Emily is at 16,200. Jelana is at 24,000. Aaron ended up finishing in the red. Negative 2,800. He was trying to get back in there and dug himself a bit of a hole that he couldn't get out of in time. So he does not get to participate in Final Jeopardy, but Emily and Jelana will handle this question in the category of explorers. The clue is, perhaps inspiring a line two centuries later, in 1774, he wrote that he was headed farther than any other man has been before me. And this was a triple stumper, but we're not doing the deep dive about it because you already have. I I have already. That's right. I have talked about Captain. Yes. This person. Yep. Emily tried who is Magellan. That is not correct. She wagered 4401. She drops to 11,799 for this game. Jelana tried who is Lewis and she wagered everything trying to get above Emily's, you know, big lead going into this game. So she drops to zero. Uh, And Captain James Cook is the inspiration here for Captain James Cook. Kirk. I don't yeah. think I realized the, you know, the name overlap there and that that, that was intentional. Yeah, me uh, neither. Yeah. So so yeah, Jelana drops to zero. We add back in their their previous totals and Jelana comes up to three thousand. She'll be the second runner up for the for the tournament. She gets to take home twenty five thousand. Aaron, even though he couldn't participate in Final Jeopardy, his his total for the two days comes out to ten thousand. He'll he'll take home fifty thousand as the first runner up. And Emily with a total of forty two thousand one hundred ninety nine for the two day total point affair is the tournament champion. She gets a hundred thousand dollars and she will advance to the twenty twenty four tournament of champions. And you know, I have my doubts about this whole wild card format, but I am very glad that we got to see Emily get another chance. And I think she's really proved herself and I'm excited to see how she does in the tournament. You know, I had that same feeling there. There were a couple of there. There have been a handful of people so far that I'm like, yeah, they you know, these these players, I remember thinking they were going to make the tournament. Yeah. Uh, but they just happened to go out in three games or whatever, or two yep. games. Mm-hmm. So I, I do. I think that's cool. I will appreciate that. Aside from all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we get to Thursday, the first game of the club's quarterfinals. We have the contestants, Matt Takemoto, an elementary school teacher from Moraga, California. Jen Jeswinski, 
a youth service librarian from Algonquin, Illinois, and Charlie Fonville, a producer from Los Angeles, California. The Jeopardy round categories are classical music, famous former teachers, a little legalese, potpourri, operation, and altered states, which is just anagrammed states. The first one they went to there, they, I don't know, maybe forgot the category. They got the $200 clue Old Fair, and nobody attempted it. That is Florida. And then I think they, like, remembered what they were supposed to do and got all the yeah. rest of them. Yeah. If you forget that it's anagrams and it just comes up, Old Fair. What? <laughs> what could that am I possibly... To, am I supposed to come up with a word that means Old Fair out of the letters in altered yeah. states? Like, what am I, what am I, what are we doing here? Yeah. Yeah. I had forgotten what the category was and tried to figure out what what wordplay might reference an old fair. I finally remembered the thousand dollar level of classical music, which I think has been you've you've made that a quiz question. I at some certainly point. have. Yes. I think more of, than once. May, I think more than once. I think maybe I got it the second time. The theme of the piece is the true mystery of these variations by Edward Elgar. Those are the Enigma variations. Matt got that one. Yes. Matt seems to know his classical music yeah he got the 600 800 and thousand dollar level yeah. not that they were particularly deep cuts but he was immediately on it so he seems yeah. to be confident nice job, in that. Matt. yeah way to go nobody knew the thousand dollar level of potpourri fretum herculeum is the latin name of this strait matt tried what is the aegean but that is the strait of gibraltar which I did a deep dive about, although I don't think I covered that particular fact. No, but if you know that the rocks are on either side are known as the Pillars of Hercules. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then that might might have pointed you there. All right. Daily Double number one is in a little legalese at pick number 20, the $1,000 level. Jen finds it. She's at 2600 In third place, but just barely, Charlie's at 3000 Matt is at 2800 She makes it a true Daily Double, and she gets the clue. Libel and slander are both forms of this 10-letter term often found before of character. And it takes her a second, but she gets there. Defamation is the response there. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Charlie's at 3800 Jen is at 7000 Matt is at 4600 and the Double Jeopardy categories are math symbols, Oscar-winning screenplays, changing White House towel monograms, eat, pray, and love. Love in quotation marks. Yeah. That White House towel monograms was really interesting because they just, you know, showed an image of a towel mm -hmm. with a monogram on it. And you basically had to guess what president it was. And they gave you the president before. Yeah, you had to provide the monogram for the next president, right? Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. The monogram for the next president, yeah. Yeah, so you did need to know their middle initial. But you didn't, like, you didn't necessarily need to remember what, like, what their middle initial stood for, for example. Right, yeah. Right, Harry S. Truman. Yeah. This is extremely pedantic. But... But... I got my buttons kind of pushed about the, the visual of the monograms because typically tallow monograms, you'll put the last initial larger in the middle. <laughs> and I you know, know. <laughs> you know, I have noticed that on like, we, we got a, someone gave us a monograms towel set for our wedding. And I have noticed that. And I will say it bugs the hell out of me that I'm like, my initials 
Why not KJB? Mm-hmm. Why is the J in the middle? That's not how you read letters. Why do rich people have to ruin things? <laughs> do you not know how to read in order? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to switch it around, you have to, like, the middle one, the the last initial that moves to the middle, it has to be larger, right? If they're going to all be the same size, which they were here, then then you do it, you know, first, middle, last. Yeah. But it's, which, yeah, it's like, it's like emphasizing the last name by making it like the centerpiece or whatever. Um, sure, but this doesn't, it's not. It's, it's weird. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. It's no, not uh, how you read. <laughs> It's like Some, the signs that say "Go children slow." It's the same same principle, right? Or, yeah. Or, <laughs> it's like children in the middle to get your eye there, mm-hmm. and then like "Go slow" flanks it. Yeah. I don't <sighs> know if you have those where you are. Actually, I haven't seen one in a while. Maybe we're maybe we're phasing those out here. No, we too. don't. We don't have yeah. children out here. Yeah. Or laws. <laughs> That's what I've heard. <laughs> so old west. Yeah. I don't know if I will ever remember who Albrechter is, but at least I'm in good company because it was a triple stumper in the prey category at the $2,000 level. Legend says this German artist's 1508 drawing of praying hands was inspired by his own brother. Luckily, I didn't miss it on Jeopardy when I, like, when I was there, but I, I don't know how many Albrechter questions I need to go through in my life before I remember that he was a person. Yeah. I heard that question and my brain was like, Albrechtdor. And I was like, how do you know that? There's no way you could know that. Stop saying random stuff. Um, <laughs> it I couldn't would, possibly. I would definitely not have rung in. Um, mm-hmm. And then Ken was like, it's Albrechtdor. And I was like, oh, I guess I guess my brain did know it. Yeah. I don't know how or why. So your brain crosses its arms and says, fine. I guess I just won't work for you for the rest of the day. Guess who's going to be listening to the Indiana Jones theme song for the next 17 hours? <laughs> <Ba-da-bum>. <laughs> uh, Daily Double number two is in Oscar winning screenplays at the $1,600 level. Pick number four, Charlie finds it. He's at $5,400. Jen is at $7,800. Matt's at $4,600. He bets it all, as well he should. Gets the clue. 1976, William Goldman, from the book by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. And he gets correct with what is all the president's men. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is in that changing White House towel monograms category. It's at the $2,000 level. It's pick number 25, and Charlie finds it. He's 13,600 with Janet 14,600 and Matt at 14,200. So the scores are scores are high but all within a thousand of each other. Charlie wagers 5,500 looking to get ahead and gets the clue from RWR to this. And he tries WJW but that is incorrect. GHWB George Herbert Walker Bush is the one here. Yes. So, drops down, and at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Charlie's at 8,100, Jen is at 15,400, and so is Matt! Mm-hmm. Tied right there at the end. So it makes this very interesting. We get the final Jeopardy category, American authors, and the clue. In 1950, the Swedish Academy said this Nobel Prize winner is a regional writer, but called his regionalism universal. Uh, Charlie got it correct with who is William Faulkner. Uh, and wagered everything, 8,100, which I think was a mistake. Mm, yeah. 
you could wager less than that to try and get above 15,400, but also not risk falling to zero. Yep. Um, because Jen and Matt are probably either going to bet it all or bet nothing. I don't know. Anyway, Jen bet it all, also got it correct with who is Faulkner, so she doubles up, and Matt went with who is Sinclair Lewis, but it is in mm-hmm. fact William Faulkner, and he yep. also bet it all, so he drops to zero, and Jen moves on to the next round. That's right. And so on Friday, we're in quarterfinals still, game two, and the contestants are Kate Lazo, an educational consultant from Walnut Creek, California, Dennis Chase, a biotech project manager from Palm Springs, California, and Alan Johnson, an analytics engineer from Matuchin, New Jersey. And the Jeopardy round categories are, where's that? Multiply by the clues value, designers, internal rhymes, golf, and greens my husband has been for years bemoaning that all the math questions on jeopardy are really just math vocabulary questions so multiply by the clues value we got the rare actual computation category right that was fun it was it it was i i did not care for it (laughs) i struggled a little bit like I, w- I was I was told there would be no math, you right. know? Um, yeah, so we, we went from at the $200 level, seven. Dennis got that. That's 1400 And then we started getting some wrong answers. Mm-hmm. At the $400 level, 30. It's not Alan tried 1200 but Dennis got it. It's 12000 And then we had to do more zeros at the $600 level. We got 700 Dennis got that one. It's 420000 nice and mm-hmm. at the $800 level 0.6 oh no <laughs> what How? that's not even possible what are you talking about Kate rang in and then couldn't get it and then Alan got it it's 480 and then at the $1000 level 10001 Dennis tried 1 million 1000 Alan tried 10 million 100,000 but it is 10 million 1,000 yeah it's it's tough to do that in five seconds yeah right because it, these are short clues so it's not like you have the time of the reading to figure it out mm-hmm. they just give you a number you got to be ready to multiply yep you almost have to decide whether you're going to ring in before you get to see the clue when yeah, it's so it's, short it's very quick yeah yeah I had a a thought in the internal rhymes category. I know I don't think much, but so this is coming as a surprise. The $400 clue was monotonous, boring, or lacking variety equals this rhyming word. And Dennis got it with, what is humdrum? Mm -hmm. Would I, am I incorrect in thinking that they would also have to take tedious because it has an internal rhyme of TD? I think you might be right. Now, the, the rest of the, like, all of the responses in this category were... Two syllables. In, two syllable, and the syllables rhyme. Right. So, But I, I think tedious does have an internal rhyme. Yeah. And I, I believe that it would have to work. I think that that's one of those ones where they didn't think about it, but it does technically fit. So, even if it's, you know, maybe slightly less elegant, mm-hmm. they've got to take it. Daily double number one is at the bottom of the greens category. It's pick number 14. Dennis uncovers it. He's at 2,800 at this point. Alan's at zero. Kate's at 400. Wager's 1,500. 
The clue is the name of this element comes from the Greek for light green. And he guesses what is fluorine, but it is chlorine. He was very close, mm-hmm. but not quite. Just interesting to me. I, I, I hadn't ever put that together, but I guess like chlorophyll. Yeah, it's the same oh, chlor. Yeah. yeah, I don't yeah. know. I oh, had yeah. no idea, so that was new to me. Yeah, I also had no idea. I was like, yeah. well, what's a green element? So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Alan's at 3,400. Dennis is still in the lead at 4,900, and Kate is at 2,200. Double Jeopardy categories are ships, sound the trumpet, those darn Etruscans, typing test, literary email addresses, and drop a letter. Felt for Dennis at the $1,200 level of literary email addresses. That clue was wannabe crazy Irish con man at oneflewoverthecuckoosnest.com. And he tried who is McMurtry. We had just had a McMurtry clue in, in a recent game. Or was it in the... Was it in the previous round? No, it was in the, it was in the previous game. So he watched in, the game, right? In the audience, uh, he, yeah. Yeah, he watched that game and probably had the name McMurtry in his head. That was incorrect. It turned into a triple stumper. Randall McMurphy is the name of that character. Yeah. Yeah. McMurphy. Rough break there. Similarly, he almost knew the $2,000 level Meg's mom at littlewomen.org. He tried who is mommy, but it is marmy. Marmy is the uh, what the little women call their mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Typing test was another kind of different part of my brain, like yeah. the like the multiply by the clues value, right? Like mm-hmm. I touch type, you know. I did the <laughs> I did the Mavis Beacon back in the nineties, <laughs> mm-hmm. and now I don't have to think about where the keys are anymore. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's it is different to be like, wait, oh, where do my fingers go when I type mm-hmm. those things? What letters are up there? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, we had at the eight hundred at the four hundred dollar level of the letters in the bottom row, the last alphabetically. Dennis tried what is X, Alan got the rebound at Z, and then at the eight hundred dollar level of the letters in the bottom row, the second to last alphabetically, this was the very next next pick. And this time it's X, but Alan got it. So, you know, Dennis, who rang in with X the previous time, missed out didn't, there. Yeah, didn't get a chance. Yeah. All right. Daily Double number two is at the $1,600 level of ships. It's pick number three. Kate finds it. She's at 2600 with Alan at 3400 and Dennis at 4100 She makes it a true Daily Double, and she gets the clue. On July 24, 1969, the USS Hornet was in the Pacific waiting for this group of men. And she figures it out. It is the astronauts on Apollo 11. And Daily Double number three is in Those Darn Etruscans at the $1,200 level, pick number eight. So it's also early. Alan finds it. He's at 2200 Dennis is at 4500 Kate's at 5600 And uh, he bets it all. And the clue is the wolf in the Capitoline Wolf statue may be Etruscan. These two babies she's suckling were added later. And he gets correct with who are Romulus and Remus. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round... Alan is in the lead with 13,200. 
Dennis is at 12,500. Kate is at 9,600. And the final Jeopardy category is the Catholic Church with the clue the 1456 posthumous annulment of this woman's sentence by the church was witnessed by her mother, Isabel. If you have been a longtime listener of the podcast, you would know this one. Clearly, Kate and Dennis must be. How else could they know? Yeah. No other way. So, so we go to Kate first. She has who is Joan of Arc. That is correct. She's wagered 9,500, everything but 100 bucks. That brings her up to 19,100. Dennis also has Who is Joan of Arc with a 10,500 wager. That brings him up to 23,000. Alan wrote Who is Joanna? Mm. Yeah. Could have just stopped at Joan and it would have been sufficient. They could have taken Jean as well because, you know, French and the Middle Ages, her name gets spelled some different ways. Right. But definitely never spelled as Joanna in the record. So he drops down. He's wagered 11,801, which drops him to 1399. And so Dennis gets that semifinalist spot. Yeah. Real, just heartbreaking. Yeah. Rough break. But hey, congrats to Dennis. Well played. And that's the end of the week. And this is the break in the middle of the episode where we remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. You can go there to help us out with the costs of making this podcast. So you can send us a couple bucks a month or something, which helps us with our editing software and hosting and all of those costs of putting a thing out on the internet like this. And we are very grateful to those of you who are doing that. It feels great to not be losing money on this podcast. Yeah, definitely. We try to put up some exclusive content from time to time. At the very least, the quiz questions go up usually. <laughs> uh, oh, no, did you forget again? Okay. I forgot after talking about it. Gosh, every time. Yeah, all right. We'll see if I can break the streak this week. This is a really compelling ad for the Patreon. You get the, you get the good feeling of supporting the media you care about and possibly you get early access to the quiz questions there's um, only one way to find out if you do <laughs> right um there are some there are some places out in the world though that are that are doing some some real good both in what they do and in their effectiveness in delivering it to be fair we've been very effective in delivering the podcast we just are not always effective in delivering the supporter perks but we do, we, we are very thankful for our supporters. And, and also, you know, we want to point you towards some other places where that are doing much more important things than us. So some of the causes we care about are in the show notes. Yes. Yeah. All right. Kyle, what are we talking about this week? Okay. Are you talking about Attila the Hun? We're not. Okay. Are we talking about Albrecht Durer? No, because I talked about Van Gogh recently, so I oh, decided that's true. That's not true. to consider any artists. Um, are we talking about the number 10 million at what? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> are we talking about Herodotus? No, although he would have been a solid choice. No, we're in the Thursday game. I've done a similar, like a related deep dive in the past. But the operation category, the $400 level breadbasket boycott of discriminatory... Ooh businesses begun in 1962 by the SCLC. Nobody tried to guess what SCLC 
SCLC stands for. It is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is one of those civil rights organizations. And I got to thinking about them and I was like, you know what? I can list all the organizations, but they are like alphabet soup to me. I don't really remember which one is which. So let me look a little bit. And, and then, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, Martin Luther King was somewhere in there. Um, right. Of course. Yeah. So I was like, all right, well, it's, a, it's an organization. It's an organization that still exists. So clearly it's more than just like, you know, Martin Luther King's, you know, organization. So like, let's, let, let's learn this one a little bit and maybe differentiate it from the others. And maybe that will help me a little bit. Maybe it'll help some of us with a, a little bit with the like, alphabet soup of civil rights organizations. Yeah. So the Southern Christian Leadership Conference is our topic this week. Sounds good. Yeah. So as I said, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, it still exists. It was founded in 1957. And it is and was based in Atlanta, Georgia. It was founded in the wake of the Montgomery bus boycott. That boycott was carried out by the then newly established Montgomery Improvement Association. Martin Luther King Jr. was the president of that of that organization, and Ralph David Abernathy served as program director. That boycott eventually won the you know what it was looking for, and in the wake of that, Bayard Rustin, who that's a name you should know, based in New York City, civil rights activist. He also, I think, he was gay, which maybe led to him being more in a. Uh, supporting kind of a behind the scenes mm -hmm. kind of role. Yeah. Anyway, he conceived the idea of, you know, creating an org, a national organization. He sought CK Steele, who was another activist figure, public figure to take the lead role. Steele declined, but told Rustin that he'd be glad to work beside him if he sought Martin Luther King for the leadership position of this organization. So on January 10, 1957, Martin Luther King Jr. invited about 60 black ministers and leaders to Ebenezer Church in Atlanta. Their goal was to form an organization to coordinate and support nonviolent direct action as a method of desegregating bus systems across the South. Present at this meeting were obviously Martin Luther King Jr., Bayard Rustin, Ella Baker, uh, C.K. Steele I just mentioned, Fred Shuttlesworth of Birmingham, Joseph Lowry of Mobile, Alabama, and Ralph Abernathy, all playing key roles in this meeting. This group continued their initial meeting into the next day, January 11th, calling the group at the time a Southern Negro Leaders Conference on Transportation and Nonviolent Integration. They held a press conference on January 11th, where they described telegrams that they had sent to President Eisenhower, Vice President Nixon, and Attorney General Brownell. They shared an outline of their overall position regarding the restrictions against the, quote, elementary democratic rights of America's Negro minority, and a short list of concerns that they wish to raise with the white Southerners of goodwill. That's also a direct quotation. They held a follow-up meeting February 15th of 1957 in New Orleans. And out of those two meetings, the January and February, came the new organization with Martin Luther King Jr. as its president. They shortened the name that they used for their January meetings. They were calling it the Negro Leaders Conference on Nonviolent Integration, and then Southern Negro Leaders Conference. And then in August 1957, they settled on the name that the organization 
has since continued to hold the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, expanding its focus beyond buses, which was their initial kind of narrow focus to ending all forms of segregation. They established an office in Atlanta with Ella Baker as their first and for a long time only staff member. Martin Luther King Jr. was the president. C.K. Steele, the first vice president. A.L. Davis was second vice president. T.J. Jemison was the secretary. And Medgar Evers was assistant secretary. Um, that's an important name, although it's the first time mm-hmm. it's come up here. Ralph Abernathy was the treasurer. Uh, and Shuttlesworth. I mentioned was the historian of the organization. Um, The SCLC was established as an organization of affiliates, most of which were either individual churches or community organizations, such as the Montgomery Improvement Association. Um, It's a little bit of a different kind of organizational structure than the NAACP or the Congress of Racial Equality Corps, which is another organization that comes up. Those organizations recruited individual members, right? Like individual people, and then formed local chapters of their organizations in different areas. Um, But SCLC, their approach was to have local churches or other local organizations as members of their network. They had a tough time gaining traction because, you know, social activism for racial equality faced pretty fierce repression and retaliation from the police, from the Ku Klux Klan, from, you know, from white citizens councils. Only a few churches initially had the courage to affiliate with the SCLC and those that did risked economic retaliation against pastors and other church leaders, arson, bombings, bad stuff. SCLC's advocacy of boycotts and other forms of nonviolent protest was controversial. Um, Many Black community leaders believed that segregation should be challenged in the courts, which was the NAACP's approach. Um, And that direct action kind of um, provoked uh, hostility and violence. Also controversial was SCLC's belief that churches should be involved in political activism. I mean, you'll you'll encounter similar mm-hmm. things with <laughs> with the religious scene in America now. Right. Yeah, many ministers and religious leaders, both black and white, thought that the role of the church was to focus on the spiritual needs of the congregation and perhaps perform charitable works for the impoverished, not to coordinate political action. Some of the first, one of the first kind of programs that the SCLC undertook was around citizenship schools. The citizenship schools program already existed before the SCLC. It was founded by Septima Clark, but it was taken under the auspices of the SCLC. Citizenship schools focused on teaching adults to read so they could pass voter registration literacy tests, fill out driver's license exams, use mail order forms, open checking accounts, and so on. Septima Clark, who had started the program, became the first woman allowed a position on the SCLC board despite continued resistance from the other SCLC leaders who were all men. She struggled with a lot of sexism during her time on the SCLC with particularly harsh sexism from Martin Luther King Jr. himself and Ralph Abernathy. The Citizenship Schools program, though, was phenomenally impactful and became kind of a center of like kind of community organizing 
Because of its dedication to direct action and civil disobedience, mobilizing mass participation in boycotts and marches, the SCLC was considered more radical than the more established NAACP, which focused on lawsuits, legislative lobbying, and education campaigns. At the same time, SCLC was not as radical as the Congress of Racial Equality or the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You'll mm-hmm. also hear that called SNCC. SNCC. Um, yep. Over time, S- the SCLC and SNCC took different strategic paths. SCLC focused on large-scale campaigns such as Burma, Birmingham and Selma to win national legislation. SNCC was focusing more on community organizing to build political power on the local level. In a lot of communities, there was tension between those two organizations because SCLC's base was the minister-led Black churches, while SNCC was trying to build community organizations led by the poor, which could be seen as, you know, kind of rivals to the, like, the existing community structures. In 1961-1962, joined SNCC in the Albany Movement, a broad protest against segregation in Albany, Georgia, generally considered the organization's first major nonviolent campaign. At the time, it was considered by many to be unsuccessful. Despite large demonstrations and many arrests, they did not win many changes, and the protests did not draw much attention on the national scene. Their next campaign, though, they were they were involved in the campaign in Birmingham, Alabama, which was a major success. The campaign focused on the goal of desegregating Birmingham's downtown merchants rather than total desegregation, which was the goal in Albany. And they won some major victories there. After that, they called for massive protests in Washington, D.C. to push for new civil rights legislation. A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin issued similar calls for a march on Washington for jobs and freedom. And so that march was coordinated jointly by the SCLC, which is the one we're talking about, Congress of Racial Equality, SNCC, NAACP, and the Urban League. And that is the, you know, the big famous march in August of 1963, where Martin Luther King Jr. gives the I Have a Dream speech. When civil rights activists protesting segregation in St. Augustine, Florida, were met with arrests and Ku Klux Klan violence, the local SCLC affiliate appealed to the national SCLC for assistance, and the SCLC sent staff to help organize and lead demonstrations and mobilized support for St. Augustine in the North. To good effect, SCLC was also behind the campaigns in Selma with collaboration collaborating with SNCC there and also the Dallas County Voters League. They were involved in the Grenada Freedom Movement in Grenada in Mississippi. Grenada, Mississippi. That town was still basically fully segregated, although the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had outlawed segregation of public facilities. There was a boycott of white merchants after black students were arrested for trying to sit downstairs in the white section of the movie theater. And then when the new school year began in September, the SCLC and the Grenada County Freedom Movement encouraged black students to register at the formerly white schools under a court desegregation order. This was by far the largest school integration attempt in Mississippi since since the Brown versus Board of Education ruling. 10 years prior in 1954. This was met with violence against the Black students and economic retaliation against their parents, leading to many Black parents withdrawing their children. 
from from those schools. When school officials refused to meet with a delegation of Black parents, Black students began boycotting both the white and Black schools in protests. By the end of October, almost all of the 2,600 Black students in Grenada County were boycotting school, and the boycott was not ended until early November, when SCLC attorneys won a federal court order that the school system treat everyone equally regardless of race and meet with the Black parent. The Chicago Freedom Movement is the one that our Jeopardy clue referenced, uh, also known as the Chicago Open Housing Movement. It was supported by the Chicago-based Coordinating Council of Community Organizations and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. It included a large rally, marches, and demands to the city of Chicago, covering a wide range of areas besides open housing and including education, transportation, job access, income and employment, health, wealth generation, crime in the criminal justice system, community development, tenants' rights, etc. Operation Breadbasket was led in part by Jesse Jackson and sought to harness African-American consumer power. This movement was largely credited with inspiring the 1968 Fair Housing Act. SCLC was also associated with the Poor People's Campaign, which I got into quite a bit in my like less-known Martin Luther King campaigns deep dive. So I'm not going to get into that a lot. But 1968, begun by Martin Luther King Jr., but then continued under the leadership of Ralph Abernathy in the wake of King's assassination. Hmm. So Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. That is not what this deep dive is about. But he was the president of the SCLC. So Ralph Abernathy takes over after his assassination in 1968. COINTELPRO, the FBI program targeting various organizations and leaders focused in part on Martin Luther King and others associated with the SCLC. That would be a whole deep dive of its own, but that undermines some of their work. A leadership is transferred to Ralph Abernathy, who was the leader until 1977. He was then replaced by Joseph Lowry, who was SCLC president until 1997. And then in 1997, Martin Luther King III was unanimously elected to head the SCLC, replacing Joseph Lowry. Within only a few months of taking the position, though, he was criticized by the board for alleged inactivity, accused of failing to answer correspondence and take up issues important to the organization. They suspended him from the presidency in June 2001, concerned that he was letting the organization drift into inaction. He was reinstated a week later after promising to take a more active role and then prepared a four-year plan outlining a new direction for the organization. A few years later, he resigned, upon which Fred Shuttlesworth was elected to replace him. He resigned from the organization the same year that he was appointed, though, complaining that deceit, mistrust, and a lack of spiritual discipline and truth have eaten at the core of this once-hallowed organization. He was replaced by Charles Steele Jr., who served until October 2009, when Bernice King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s youngest child, was elected the president. An interim served in anticipation of her taking office, but ultimately, uh, 15 months later, she declined to to take the position. And in a written statement, she said that her decision came after numerous attempts to connect with the official board leaders on how to move forward under my leadership. Unfortunately, our visions did not align. So Charles Steele resumed the role and is currently SCLC president. And the organization is, you know, I mean, clearly it is not what it once was, but it continues to work on issues of civil rights, racism and discrimination, economic justice and and related issues. So 
it's still still doing its work. Still going. Yeah. So that's a little bit about the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And hopefully, you know, hopefully that gives a little bit of a narrative so that some of that alphabet soup of organizations is, you know, maybe a little clearer if, yeah. if anybody was struggling with that the way I was. Sure. Uh, yeah. All right. Quiz time. Are quiz you ready? Time. I'm always ready. All right. The quiz theme today is March and boycott. So question one, the word boycott derives from the name of Captain Charles Boycott the agent of an absentee landlord who managed his employer's property in County Mayo of what country? Did I? I feel like this is, I don't know. I might be way off. I'm making that this is making my deep dive on the potato famine come to mind. So I believe it's Ireland. It is Ireland. I'd forgotten that we had talked about that. Yes. Yes. Ireland. Yeah. Captain Boycott was the target of social ostracism organized by the Irish Land League in 1880. Mm -hmm. After a major economic downturn, he and his employer offered a small rent reduction to the tenants who advocated for a larger rent reduction and refused to do business with Boycott to attempt to force the issue. Um, And there had been boycotts, although obviously not called that Mm -hmm. before that, but the association of his name with that kind of action stuck. Um, So that's, that's where that name comes from. All right. You are at 10 points. Question two. We had a rebound question this week about the mother in Little Women, known as Marmy. Hopefully you don't have the tab open in front of you. Here's the question. Name any of the four March sisters. Oh. Oh, man, are they sisters? I'm going to be honest. I've never read Little Women. I remember that there is a Joe. Yes. Good. And there is a Beth. Oh, you, yeah, you all, I only was going to make you do one because I, I know, I knew you probably, I knew, I knew you hadn't read Little Women. Yes. The, the clue was like Meg's mom. Yeah. It was the, the email address was Meg's mom. So Meg, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. Yeah. So you've got, you got Joe. I almost feel like I should give bonus points because you got Beth. Yeah. So Little Women is semi autobiographical based on, Louisa May Alcott's childhood with, you know, as one of four sisters. So Joe is her, you know, her, her character, it's her self insert. Meg is her, her sensible older sister who I think was named Anna. Alcott's sister Lizzie died at 23 from the lingering effects of scarlet fever that character was the inspiration for Beth and then her headstrong youngest sister May was Amy in the book. Okay. Some of these name connections are obvious, right? Lizzie and Beth right. are both Elizabeth's. May and Amy are anagrams of each other. Yeah. All right. You got the little women question, right? Nice I, job. I You're at 20 points. Question three. What organization's name was coined by radio star Eddie Cantor? A play on the title of a radio and newsreel series. The name tied in with lapel pins that were sold for 10 cents each. Pell pins sold for 10 cents each. Let me see if I can come up with a clue for you. Okay, would that be the March of Dimes? It is the March of Dimes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Founded by FDR to combat 
polio. And then the name was a reference to the March of Time, which was like a news program, you know, like a radio Mm. program, but they also did like the newsreels before movies. So March of Dimes was a reference to that and the idea that anyone can afford a dime. But then if you, if you, you could, you could get a lapel pin for your dime. Yeah. All right. Uh, You're at 30 points. And question four. An extended boycott took place against a company from your home state. What company was boycotted starting in 1966 in an action organized by the Colorado chapter of the American GI Forum and the Denver-based Crusade for Justice in response to the company's discriminatory practices? The boycott continued for at least 20 years, expanding throughout the American West and the nation, although it's widely considered over, one activist commented just a few years ago that this company's products still can't be found in any gay bar in San Francisco. If this is true, I have never heard of this. There aren't many, there are many companies that have been around in Colorado for that long that would have distribution throughout the entire West and to speak specifically of a bar, I'm going to guess it's Coors. It is Coors. Yes, the Coors strike and boycott was a series of boycotts and a strike action against the Coors Brewing Company. Um, uh, There were numerous complaints around discrimination. Um, One complaint cited the fact that Hispanic workers constituted only a small fraction of the total employees at Coors with only 27 of the 1,330 employees in 1968 being Mexican-American. There were also uh, concerns around support for and donations to right-wing causes. Um, The owner of Coors uh, vocally opposed the equal rights amendment um so so yeah it it, uh it started as a sort of um, more narrow kind of discrimination concern and and, uh (laughs) grew from there um yeah it's a bad look for uh i realize this is not him but the person who founded it was named adolf Kors. so oh yikes (laughs) whole whole thing yeah real good yeah uh yeah so yeah Go ahead. Surprisingly, they don't talk about that on the brewery tour. That's I'm shocked. Shocked. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I think it. I think it. I think it formally came to an end sometime in like the in like 1986 or so. Um, But it was a 20 plus year boycott, and I think uh, you know there there's the. There were there were segments of the market that just you know never never went back to course. Yeah, which you know, not a big deal. Yeah, you're not really missing much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. All right. You're at forty points. Question five. This one's a little convoluted. Hopefully, not too convoluted. Convoluted. A certain British idiom gave rise to the name of a literary character. The idiom references the feisty behavior of a famously prolific species at the beginning of its mating season. Uh, the The literary character is paired with another literary character also based on an idiom. Uh, that idiom is theorized to be based on the effects of mercury on milliners. Name the, the first one, the one that fits uh, literary character or idiom. The one that fits the theme. I would, believe that's mad as a march hare mad as a march March is correct yes uh yeah uh apparently um early in the in the rabbit mating season 
it looks like they're kind of fighting. <laughs> they get mm. a little, they get a little feisty. They, they, yeah, the testosterone gets pumping. You know, yeah. you know how it is. Um, yeah. So, so Matt as a March Hare and Matt as a Hatter are the two idioms that inspired the March Hare and the Mad Hatter uh, in mm-hmm. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Um, nice. All right. You are at 50 points going into the final, and we're going to call this category From the Garden. From the Garden. I have a garden. It grew weeds this year. Cool. And... I do not have a garden, so you're one better than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, let's go 40. All right. For 90 points, if you are correct, March is Women's History Month, Music in Our Schools Month, and Cerebral Palsy Awareness Month. It's also National Nutrition Month, which perhaps you could celebrate with some ants on a log, a soup with a mirepoix base, or some jambalaya using the holy trinity of Cajun and Creole cuisine. Any of those would use what vegetable, of which March is also the national month. Why does everything have to have a month? I don't know. And, and also, also a month? You a can't month. have a day for celery? Like, <laughs> right? Does celery deserve more than a day? It's like, I nothing celery. Does anybody have strong feelings about celery either I, way? I have a strong negative feeling about celery. Even though it used to be used to create garlands and, and, and crowns for the ancient Greeks. Yeah. Um, okay, whatever it's it's it, it, it i don't know the fibrousness it, it's crunchy nothing like it's it's, it's if water had hair uh, gross <laughs> right that's how i feel I, about celery i disagree but okay i if that's if that's your feeling yes i can see how that would be like it's ugh. gross I, i'm not a big celery fan so noted but uh but march is national celery month for reasons that i cannot fathom does does celery have like a big national lobby like why yeah i don't know where like who decided that you know? yeah yeah i don't have a whole lot of celery facts although i did find that um celery was uh considered to be a good kind of uh early spring antidote to the like preserved meats that had been getting people through the winter so i guess i can see that right like yeah if you've been living on like salted pork or whatever right like sure yay Mm -hmm. celery (laughs) yeah yeah hard tack and salted pork you're like oh my god something green and fresh oh yeah (laughs) hey you got 90 points got 90 points job lovely yeah oh sorry go ahead no, that was just a that was a wonderful quiz. I appreciate it. Ah, I'm, I'm so glad. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave our rating or review if you have a minute to do that. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who like Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. That's right, and we'll be back next week with more clubs. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.